Hi, my name is Marianne Salem. I'm a Lebanese Aboriginal bisexual woman. Hello, I'm Duryadin Hawk, aka Daya. I'm an Indonesian Pakistani non-binary lesbian. We are two writers who love movies, television and books, especially when they're gay. And welcome to Gay V Club, where we'll be analysing LGBT texts that we like, that we don't like, and how we relate to these texts as gay people of colour. Happy welcome. Pride Month. Happy also, Pride. Is it happy? Is it, is it Should happy? Should we even be saying happy? Nope. But also, it goes without saying, really, but Black Lives Matter. Want to make it clear where we stand on this podcast? There's a lot happening in the world right now. I just want to say to people, you know, we're living in a global pandemic and in a time of great social unrest as well. If your mental health is not great, I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. We hope you've been doing all you can, donating, signing petitions, going to protests. Yep. If you are going to protests, please be safe. Please wear a mask. Please social distance. Mm. Turn off your data on your phone. Don't check it on Facebook. All of that. Okay? Yep. And if you can't go to protest for whatever reason, that's okay. Educating yourself is also like a very important step. I don't really subscribe to this idea that if you're not going to protests and you're not donating, then you're not doing anything useful because not everyone can do either of those things. As long as you can do what you can. Do what you can and that is all anyone can ask of you. But I just would like to briefly talk about the specific context of Black Lives Matter in Australia. I know from interactions I've had with people on and around social media that a lot of people don't believe there are black people in this country. A lot of people don't believe that Australia even has an indigenous population. And even if they do believe that, what a lot of people don't understand is that indigenous people in this country are black. So this country, much like the United States and a lot of other countries, was founded on anti-black racism and also obviously the colonization of an indigenous race of peoples. A lot of people in Australia will say that Aboriginal people that we would were genocided, like there are none of us left. That is not true. Aboriginal people, while make up a very small portion of this country, like are still very much here. And Australia has a horrible history of completely disenfranchising, murdering, assimilating, abducting the Indigenous population in order to get rid of us. But we are still here. And it just frustrates me because whenever I've tried to talk about black issues in Australia, I am often shut down by people because they simply don't believe that Australia has black people here. And so that's what I want people to understand first and foremost is that to be black in Australia, the ind Indigenous people, Aboriginal people are often referred to, it's a black identity and it's a different sort of black identity to being descended from black African people. But obviously the racism that black African people experience in this country is because of European colonisation as well. But yeah, there have been 422 Aboriginal people that have died in police custody since 1992. And that's the deaths we know about. That doesn't count all the other deaths that happened before that. So Australia very much has a problem, very similarly to the US. It's just not spoken about. It's just not as obvious. It's often not filmed. 
Often Aboriginal deaths in custody happen behind closed doors, so they're very easy to deny, but they very much happen, they're very much real. So Black Lives Matter is very much an issue in Australia. It is very much relevant to Australia. If I have any Australians listening to this podcast who have had the thought that, oh, we don't have it as bad here, that's not true. It may have been true from your point of view, but it is not true from Aboriginal people point of view. And I was quite upset, very upset actually, by the fact that there tends to be from non-black Australians a much higher like outpouring of outrage for when black people in the United States are killed by police. And obviously, rightly so, that is outrageous. But that same outrage is never, it never happens the same way when Aboriginal people in Australia are killed in custody. And yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I am very grateful that the movement has taken off in the way that it has. And I hope that good reform can come of it around the world. I want to make it clear that anti-blackness is everywhere. Black Lives Matter, they matter here, they matter in the United States, they matter everywhere. And if you are Australian and you're looking to donate to funds, I just discovered this amazing resource today, this amazing collective called Pay the Rent. It's a grassroots movement. They are a non-government organisation. And it's very similar to Act Blue in the United States, the way you can donate to Act Blue and it distributes your donation among lots of different bail and relief funds. Pay the Rent in Australia is a really great organization. You can have a one-time donation or an ongoing monthly donation, and it distributes your donation between, I think, 20 different Indigenous activism, legal, mutual aid, and advocacy services, and it's really good. It is such a good resource and it has a list of all the charities that it donates to and you can make an individual donation from there as well. So, yeah, highly recommend checking out Pay the Rent. Hopefully by the time that this episode is out, the momentum hasn't died and there are still protests and people are still going to protests. And people are still donating. Mm. I do want to make a point. If you're a black person and you are feeling fatigued and angry and upset, take a moment. It's okay to step away because this is very traumatic for all of us in various ways. To my white allies and non-black allies, same thing goes for you, but also like you need to make sure you come back because you're less likely to come back after you take a break. Reflect in that time on how you can come back in a way that is useful and helpful and how you won't fatigue yourself because the media cycle is very fatiguing at the moment. So yeah, we just wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about this because it is very important to us as people with a platform and also just as people. Everyone be safe as always and be a good ally. There's so many resources out there and this is something that I'm really loving at the moment. I know people think sharing on Instagram can be a bit performative, but honestly, I've never seen this many resources being shared on Instagram. Like it's actually quite good. And the way it's being broken down into really easy points for people to read is really good as well. So so make sure you read, and but also take care of yourself. Please also be careful when you're distributing photos of police violence. Be wary that there are going to be black people that will see that footage as well, and the more you share it, it can be quite traumatizing. Be mindful of posting black trauma. 
I know that it's good to raise awareness of when it's happening, but also there's a really dark history associated with sharing images of black trauma around. So just yeah, just ask yourself how necessary it really is. So oh, and also if you're a person who's part of the LGBT community and you you're not approving of protesting, learn your history, please. If you are an LGBT person and you're quote unquote celebrating. Pride Month, just remember that the first Pride was a riot against police brutality. So, Black Lives Matter, and remember, as a great woman once said, no Pride for some of us without liberation for all of us. Yes. On to, I guess, our regularly scheduled programming. What are we discussing today, Mary? Today, we'd like to talk about gay and bi representation in not one, not two, but three different texts. We're going to talk about Hollywood, the new miniseries by Ryan Murphy that's on Netflix. We're going to talk about The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which is a novel by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And Dee and I are finally going to get to talk a bit at length about our favourite show, Bojack Horseman, which is an animated series created by Raphael Bob Wakesberg. Is it Wakesburg or Waxburg? I don't know. RBW, we typically call him. So what links these three texts is that they are all set in fictionalised versions of Hollywood, which provide commentary and criticism and parody of our own very real Hollywood and obviously society in general because Hollywood is a very warped mirror of society in general. But we want to focus on the gay-slash-bi characters in these texts and how their lives and careers in this industry are portrayed, whether they're closeted or not. But there are a lot of common themes in these three texts, like racial privilege, power dynamics, guilt, and nostalgia, which are going to come up as well. I actually realise I must really love things that are about Hollywood. Honestly, I eat anything up that's about Hollywood, except for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that's because Quentin Tarantino can choke. Yeah. I like seeing things that that are about movies. Yeah, me too. Because it's like, haha, all my useless movie knowledge is finally useful so that I can watch this useless movie show. Hell yeah! Yeah. That's exactly (laughs) it. Thank you for using those words. So Hollywood 2020 is set in post-war old Hollywood, often referred to as golden era Hollywood, and it follows a group of aspiring actors and filmmakers trying to make their dreams come true. Most of the characters are fictitious, but it does feature some real-life figures such as Rock Hudson, Anna Mae Wong, Henry Wilson, and Hattie McDaniel. In The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, a retired actress gives a tell-all interview about her tumultuous career and marriages, spanning from that same period of Hollywood and then a little bit later as well. While it doesn't really feature any real-life figures, the author did draw inspiration from the lives of people such as Elizabeth Taylor, Ava Gardner, Rita Hayworth. It is going to be adapted into a TV series, executive produced by Eileen Chaikin and Jennifer Beals from The L Word. I'm so excited, honestly. I'm so excited. I was just going to say, I'm keen to see who they'll cast as Evelyn. I'm keen, but also, like, while preparing for this episode, I came to the realisation, even though I really enjoyed consuming Evelyn Hugo and Hollywood 2020, and even though, like, I binged them both in, like, a very short amount of time, 
I don't know if I like them so much. That's interesting. I like that they've given me a lot to think about and a lot to talk about, but I feel like once we're done with this episode, I'm probably never going to think about them again. Possibly. I don't know. I really love Evelyn Hugo. I definitely love Evelyn Hugo more than I like Hollywood. I reread a bit of Evelyn Hugo and I like it a lot less, but I will get to those Oh, there, you, I have um, reservations and, about Evelyn Hugo. I think it's yes. – but I'll talk about that. I'll talk about that later. And also BoJack Horseman, our favorite show, which <sighs> – Bitch, I'm never going to stop loving BoJack never. Horseman. So we are literally always re-watching BoJack. Mm-hmm. Like, just it'll be on in the background or whatever. And then once we fin- get to the end, we'll just start all over again. This morning I watched the Daniel Radcliffe episode. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. So it is a satirical cartoon following the life of an anthropomorphic horse who used to be the star of a famous 90s sitcom but has since fallen into cultural irrelevance and alcoholism. There are plenty of real-life stars, often voiced by the actual stars themselves, but like Evelyn Hugo, most of the key characters are a combination of several different quote-unquote scandalous Hollywood icons. So obviously warning, there will be spoilers in this episode for Hollywood 2020, Bojack and Evelyn Hugo, so if you intend to watch and read any of these, go and do it and we'll be here when you get back. Okay, so let's start with The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. By Taylor Jenkins Reid. It is a very entertaining read. It's a, it it is. is a page turner. You cannot deny that. Mm. Yeah, I read most of it in like a day. Mm. So, Mary, why would we talk about a book titled The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo <laughs> on Gay V Club? Because, D, Evelyn Hugo, in a stunning plot twist, is bisexual. I don't think it's a plot twist. Uh, I guess. Oh, maybe it is. You're not meant to know it's it. A, it's a redirect. It's a reveal. But it's very early on redirect. Yeah. <laughs> it's a reveal. So, sorry to spoil it. I feel like the only reason people pick up this book, though, is because they know it's going to be gay. That's true. But also, to the unsuspecting public, it doesn't appear to be a book about being gay. True. It's sneaky like that. It's a sneaky book. So, in The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, you find out that while Evelyn has indeed been married to seven men, you find out that many of these marriages to men, specifically I'd say two of them, very specifically, were to divert from the fact that she was in love or is in love with a woman. The first thing we learn about Evelyn Hugo as a character is that she is an old Hollywood actress who has donated a lot of money to LGBT funds and charities. I mean, I knew from that moment, I was like, oh, okay, so Evelyn is connected to that community in some way. I did actually think immediately just because I am bi and always looking for bi rep, I was like, oh, I wonder if she'll be bi. Really? I did. I thought I told you when I told you to read this. I did was you? like, it's so bisexual. Oh, yes, you did. Because we talked about it in our. But also, I, when I read it, I was like, mm. ah, this is the first hint. You know? I was sort of like, oh, okay. that's what I meant. It was sort of like, I was like, this is the first hint. Clue one. Who <laughs> won? Um, but yes, and Evelyn fell in love with a woman called Celia, who she acted with in Little Women in a Little Women film, and Celia is meant to be the younger actress. I say younger, but honestly, like, what is... They're like the same age. They're like the same age. But she's like a bit more, not that much older. Yeah, basically, in this Little Women production, Evelyn is playing Joe, and 
Celia is playing the one that dies. I yeah, her name. We we are not Little Women fans. <laughs> Sorry, so we don't really. Sorry, know the Little Women, but they fall in love essentially, Evelyn and Celia, and it mm-hmm. is quite a fantastic love story between the two of them. But because of the shall we say constraints and oppressive nature of Hollywood, especially during the time that they are working in the industry, they absolutely under no circumstances can be out in any way. And what this book is really about is what Evelyn did in her life as a result of two things, as a result of her own ambition and as a result of her loving Celia and trying to get over Celia, trying to win Celia back. And... I feel like Evelyn Hugo is one of those stories that a lot of people are going to think doesn't have a happy ending and are going to call a sad movie or a sad representation. But again, it's one of those things that is a lot more complicated than that. Mm. But I think the last line of this book is one of the best it is. concluding lines to a book I have ever read. I remember I actually like scream <sighs> you've heard about the seven husbands of evelyn hugo wait until you hear about her wife ah! Ah! okay it's so good um it is the best line it's it is it's good so it good. is good oh. i'll give i'll give read that it was very exciting for me reading this because evelyn not only she actually uses the word bisexual we talked a lot in our bi representation episode how this is not actually as common as you'd think bisexuals using the word bisexual in film and tv and just in generally in media i was at least appreciative of evelyn hugo for actually using that word Mm -hmm. she very much identifies with that word she makes the point several times which i think is good to me it was quite obvious and that she was dealing with a lot of biphobia throughout the book i don't think it was always obvious to evelyn though which i think is Mm -hmm. quite interesting but it is a representation of bisexuality that I can say is um, one of the better ones, but that's not saying that there wasn't issues with it. What issues did you have with it? There are moments where Evelyn will describe things that Celia has said to her about how, oh, like she'll call Evelyn a lesbian and Evelyn will say, like, I'm not a lesbian, like I do love men. And then Celia gets very upset by the fact that Evelyn likes men. And to me, those moments, and they're not very often, Evelyn doesn't see these moments as expressions of biphobia. And I really can't tell because sometimes it does feel like just an insecurity of Celia's because there are a lot of moments where Celia is just generally insecure because Evelyn is meant to be such a bombshell like everyone wants to be with Evelyn yeah I do read it a lot as insecurity I honestly Celia is a bit possessive I think yes especially I think given the big fight that they have of Evelyn doing a sex scene in a movie with one of her ex-husbands and Celia gets really mad at her for not asking for permission Mm really not into that maybe i shouldn't say this but i don't really read that as being specifically biphobic i read that as being just really possessive and weird yeah well that's why i'm acknowledging like i do think that's what it is there were just certain moments where it came across as biphobia to me but i do think it was more intended as just celia being possessive and being 
very insecure about Evelyn. There is definitely moments of biphobia, not moments, but just full-on biphobia that she experiences from men, which absolutely are biphobia. Homophobia as well, but, you know, biphobia and homophobia intersect. That's why they're there. But, yes, occasionally. That's why I don't think Celia is biphobic and I don't think Mm -hmm. Evelyn sees that either. It was just sometimes it came across that way to me. There's definitely points in the book where there is biphobia and there is also lesbophobia. Even though Evelyn and Celia, they love each other so much. Mm. It's great. There are times where they really don't understand each other. No. Um, So there's times when Evelyn is doing everything she can just to appear heterosexual passing for their safety. But Celia is being also very reserved for their safety. Like they're doing like the opposite things in Mm. order to be safe. For instance, Celia can't stand the thought of Evelyn having a freaking Vegas wedding with another man and sleeping with another man as cover. Honestly, like, it's a very fucked up thing to do and it's obviously a horrible situation. Mm. But also there's the fact that Evelyn is just like, why can't you see the sacrifice that I'm making to Celia? But in the early stages of the novel, they're both kind of just not really able to understand the sacrifices that they're making for each other, which is quite sad it's a very nuanced portrayal of this and i was crying at this point i like later on close to the end where they tell each other like i wasted so much time i'm really sorry about that Mm. ah it's it's so romance just spanning like all these decades and it's so big it's so big and sprawling about the story but what do you think about celia as lesbian representation i suppose on the reread of this novel pretty much all of the characters to be quite one-dimensional except for Evelyn and Harry Mm. really Harry is Evelyn's best friend who is a producer who is a closeted gay man they have a wonderful friendship they also have a marriage of convenience it's like my favorite part of the book where Evelyn marries Harry and Celia marries what's his name but they're all actually bearding for each other I don't know. This is like the dream. Honestly. <laughs> this is like the dream set up to have with your friends, like as an adult, honestly. Yes. I mean, the homophobia is horrible and, you know, it would be nice to just marry who you want to marry that you love. Mm. But to have such a convenient setup like that. Mm. Yeah. But I do find Celia quite, I find everyone except for Evelyn and Harry to be quite one dimensional anyway. In terms of lesbian representation, yeah. It's not amazing, but also it doesn't really matter. Like, it's not something that I can really bring myself to be mad about in that regard, because it's very much not what the story is trying to do. It's called The Seven Husbands. It's very much about Evelyn. Is this author gay? No. Ah. For an author who, as far as I can tell, is straight, this is pretty okay. Mm. So, yeah, Evelyn spends a lot of this book. As much as Evelyn Hugo, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, is about her romance with Celia... Um, It is made clear that Evelyn does have some good and bad relationships with men. That's why I think it is good bisexual representation. As we've talked about previously on the podcast, like I really think bisexual representation can only really happen in long-form media because it gives um, any representation of bisexuality room to grow and I guess it just avoids those tropes of by the way and all that stuff like you you have the time to flesh out and be a bit more dimensional in the way that you portray it and I think Evelyn Hugo as a novel does this really well I feel like Evelyn's bisexuality you get a real sense of her realizing it and 
coming to terms with it, like even in the later stages of her life, which I really like. It's not perfect, but I think I think it's a really good go of writing a story like this. And I'm really glad it exists. And the other reason I'm really glad it exists is because Evelyn, while she does spend a lot of this novel trying to be with Celia, as Dee mentioned, she does spend a lot of time trying to cover that up by marrying men or being with men or doing things that would make her seem very heterosexual and not at all in any way gay. But the other aspect of her life in which she must do this is Evelyn Hugo is actually Cuban. Yeah. And her real name is Evelyn Herrera. And she is, I suppose, light-skinned enough that she can pass, or at least be ambiguous enough that she is not read immediately as a person of colour. At the very beginning of her career, Harry, the producer who discovered her, who later becomes her best friend, he tells her that if she was to go by the name Evelyn Herrera, her career would go nowhere. And it's framed in a way that's well-meaning advice. Then once she gets a contract with the studio, they want her to have a really distinctive look, so they make her dye her hair platinum blonde, and she maintains that hair colour for basically the rest of her life. Yeah, people think she's a natural blonde because she's had to dye it. And it's really sad when you read that part because Evelyn really loves her mum. And that's why she fights to keep the name Evelyn, because that's the name her mum gave her and she didn't want to change that. But she has to change her last name. And throughout the book, it's quite, she has to very much distance herself from her Latinx heritage to the point where she doesn't speak Spanish. She doesn't let anyone know that she can speak Spanish. She forgets that she can. She forgets how to. Yes. And, um... When she is far enough along in her career that she's quite wealthy, she has like a housekeeper who is Latinx as well. The housekeeper says something like, oh, Evelyn never cleans up after herself or something like that. And Evelyn responds and it's a really like sort of big moment for her because that's the first time in decades that she has actually interacted with her heritage in any way and it I don't know it, it made me quite sad because she realizes in that moment like how much she gave up of that I um, in order to be where she is there's also moments where she's really frightened to let pe- like even her spouses know that she is not white because she talks mm-hmm. a lot how like oh they marry Evelyn Hugo thinking I am this movie star but really I'm just this and it got me thinking as everyone probably knows on this podcast by now like, I am a white passing person of color um, and it's a very specific experience to have like I'm not going to sit here and try and tell you that it's a hard experience or anything but it is a, a different experience of being a person of color and I'm sort of always looking for representations of that experience because it is different from other experiences of being a person of color and part of doing that was I actually think it was just before I read Evelyn Hugo or maybe it was while I was reading I started looking into the history of white passing people of color in Hollywood and it's actually quite interesting the story of Evelyn Hugo where she had to change her name and she had to dye her hair in order to look more racially ambiguous more exotic that is a very common story for the white passing people of color that were in Hollywood in particularly very much reflects the story of Merle Oberon. Merle Oberon, who was actually the first Asian woman to ever win. No, she never won. 
Merle Oberon is to date the only woman of Asian descent to ever be nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars. And this was in the 40s, while India was still under British rule. But no one actually knew this when it happened. No one knew that Merle Oberon was Indian. She's also got some Maori oh, nice. descent. I don't know. The thing is, like, in order to protect herself, she circulated so many weird tales of what her upbringing is supposed to be. Mm. So it's unclear whether she's actually partly Maori or not. But we know definitely that she was born in India. Yeah, she's born in India. And she did not reveal that she was not white until it was, I think, a biography or letters or something like that was released after she died. And she talked in these documents about how managers instructed her to bleach her skin, instructed her to change her name, told her to never be out like seen with her family, all in order for her to maintain a career and maintain this idea of whiteness. Because the reality was in old Hollywood and even, I suppose, in some respect, the legacy of that still exists today especially because America had the one drop rule for a lot of things, Mm -hmm. you would never work again in Hollywood. You would not work again. And this was definitely true for especially white passing black actors. And one in particular is Freddie Washington, who is, I'm obsessed with Freddie Washington. She is so interesting. She was in a movie called Imitation of Life, where she played a white passing black woman who not struggling in accepting herself, but she'd chosen to live as a white woman because she knew it was more advantageous. And then when her mother dies, her mother is black. She sort of starts to feel guilty about that. And it's a very amazing film and it actually spurred three different remakes of this movie, none of which dealt (laughs) with the racial aspect of it. Um, But anyway, yeah, it's really weird. That was the only role pretty much in Hollywood she ever got because once she got it, No director wanted to work with her because they found out that she was black. And basically the rest of her career, any films she did were made in France. The same thing happened to Josephine Baker. Not that she was white passing in any way, but a lot of actors went over to France who were not white. But yeah, uh, Freddie Washington's actually really awesome. You should look her up. She had a hand in creating the African-American Actors Guild and all this stuff. She's really cool. But yeah, the history of white passing people in Hollywood is actually quite complex and very interesting. If you go down a deep dive into looking at it, it varied in experiences depending on how passing you were but in most cases it was pretty much made clear to you that if anyone found out that you weren't white especially before the 60s but even after that your career was very much put at risk and this is reflected in Evelyn Hugo I like the way that Evelyn Hugo makes it clear that you know passing is very much a conditional privilege and very much depends on who knows what and how much you can pass in any given moment yes I really like that I don't think it does make it clear. You don't think? Oh, maybe just because I can... My thing about this novel, my main gripe actually, is that as far as I can tell, Taylor Jenkins Reid is white. Oh, she is. Yeah, I've looked this up. A white woman wrote this novel and you can really tell. Oh, are you going to talk about the weird way that Monique talks about race in this book? I'm going to get to that. Thank you. So a white woman wrote this novel and you can really tell in how there are a lot Well, not a lot, but there are some very few but very distinct moments of really clumsy writing where she decides to very fleetingly discuss race. Mm. And like while hiding the fact that Evelyn is a person of colour is something that certainly happened to Merle Oberon, Reed did say that she was inspired specifically by Rita Hayworth, 
who was a white woman of Spanish descent, who went by Rita Cancino at the beginning of her career, but she was typecast in exotic roles, including her brown face in Charlie Chan in Egypt, where she's supposed to be Egyptian, before eventually changing her name to Rita Hayworth so that people would start appreciating her for being the white woman that she actually was. So even though Evelyn Hugo does have this scene with Harry where he tells her that she's not going to get anywhere unless she doesn't go by her actual last name, that's really all the industry pressure that she receives. They do do the whole like bleach blonde hair thing, but that's like so that they could create an iconic look for her. That is true. To make her stand out. Yeah, that you say that. So, like, I don't know how much credit I really want to give Taylor Jenkins Reid for portraying this nuance because I don't think it's done very well. Also, another thing that I think is really clumsy is the way that she introduces Monique's character as being half black in a very unsubtle clinical moment regarding her boss, who is also a black woman. I remember when I first picked up this book, I read that line and just by the way that it was so written in this white author trying to tick some diversity boxes kind of way, I stopped reading. I put the book down for like a week and didn't return to it wow. until like I picked it back up and read the rest of it in one night Okay. because I was like, oh, it's going to be this kind of book. But it wasn't that kind of book because there's just really the way that she handles race is extremely minimal anyway. She so stays there in are her very lane. few moments like this. Yeah, there are very few moments like this. They're very clumsily written or otherwise. For the remainder of the book, you don't really have to worry about it. But I think the fact that it is quite distinctive, as I notice it while reading, there's also another little blip where she just casually mentions that Evelyn Hugo was at Selma and protested with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, before moving on very abruptly with absolutely no details whatsoever. There's so many moments in the book where I'm like, did you just put this into scene so that you could seem progressive? For me, can I just say for me, the clumsy race moment in Evelyn Hugo, and I actually, I laughed out loud because comparing (laughs) these two things was so, it's so incongruous. I was like, how did you get this? So I can't remember exactly what the conversation is, but Monique, oh, by the way, everyone, I can't remember if we said this, Monique is the interviewer. So this this whole book is an interview, essentially, between mm-hmm. Evelyn Hugo. Tell-all interview. tell-all interview. I can't remember. If, we did mention it was a tell-all, but Monique is the name of the interviewer. Part of the mystery of this book is why Evelyn has finally chosen to open up and only yeah. specifically to Monique. That is actually like a very, it's a mystery throughout the book. Is it though? Is it though? I, mean, I, I mean, it does keep you in suspense. You're sort of like... Once it gets to it, it feels very convenient, you know? I mean, but Evelyn did set it up to be like that. Yeah. But anyway, anyway. It's like, we get it, but yeah, continue. <laughs> anyway, um, for me, the moment was Monique asks Evelyn a question about something to do with her bisexuality, and she, she asks Evelyn something kind of... Kind of dumb, but also valid. I don't know. It's it's sort of one of those questions that's like, oh, was finding that you like women a shock or something? Or it's something silly like that. Or did you like other women or something? It's an assumption. Like, I think Monique makes some kind of assumption that Evelyn, I don't know, slept with a lot of women or something like that. And Evelyn <laughs> gets really defensive when she says that. She's like, why would you assume that I slept with a lot of women? I never said that at all, and she gets quite defensive of something. There is this internal monologue that Monique has that's like, 
oh my god, I can't believe I made this assumption. Like, it is exactly like how people make the assumption that I'm black and I have to tell them that no, I'm biracial. Uh. Like, people, <laughs> she's like, and people ignore, like, the fact that I have a white mum or something. Like, she goes on this whole inter, and I was like, why are you comparing? <laughs> I remember reading it going, these two things are very much not the same. <laughs> okay. In the very least, my criticism of this moment is, why are you comparing these two things? Like, how is this at mm-hmm. all something that you can compare? Monique is described as very visibly black, but yeah. there's all these weird little moments where Monique gets very angry because people assume she's black. I just think it is a bit – it shows – that a white woman wrote this. Author's awkwardness in dealing with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know like, if we should give her props because she could have just made this all about white people, but she didn't. But for me, that was the clumsiest moment. I was like, how is making an assumption that someone who likes women must have been with a lot of women the same as making an assumption about race? Yeah. It's, it's very weird because the book is really good at portraying the way relationships with other people, like whether they're romantic or platonic or transactional like how those relationships can shape a person but it does very little to show how a person's race can shape a person and when it attempts that it's really bad Mm. i don't expect white authors to excel in this area at all Mm. i don't expect white authors to go any deeper than taylor jenkins reed did in this instance but also i just don't want people to fall into the trap of thinking that these crumbs that she's managed to rustle up are like the peak of racial identity representation because I've been doing a deep dive on the YouTube oh, no. in preparation for this Not episode. Not a deep dive on the YouTube. On book reviewers on YouTube. And if you search Evelyn Hugo on YouTube, there are all these thumbnails of all these white women holding up this book and they've got like looks of awe and like absolutely gushing on their faces. And like I watch some of them and I'm like, how are you praising this aspect of the book for its representation of racial identity when it's really not that good? Oh, because you're white. So yeah, that's that's just one thing that's frustrating. I think it would be cool in a show about this, because you know, it is being made into a show produced by Jennifer Beals, who is a who is white passing, you know, there's potential for this aspect of the story to be fixed. Do you have any particular hopes for this for the show when they get made? Yes. Uh, one, I have a couple of hopes. The first one is purely aesthetic. It is that for Evelyn to be played at different stages of her life by different actresses, please. Like, I really don't want to see one actress being aged, de-aged, and aged for, for, for the role oh, of please. Evelyn. Like, I I'm know. just begging you, please find... <laughs> I think there's like three distinct periods, maybe four of Evelyn. Mm. So you need maybe three or four Evelyns. Please just find Mm -hmm. three good actresses who can do it. Like, I'm begging you, please do that. I do not want to see an aged friggin' Amadiamas or anything. Like, I just want to, (laughs) please, please give me just. Yeah. Find a good good actress for older Evelyn, a good actress for middle-aged Evelyn and a good actress for, you know, young 20-something Evelyn. Mm -hmm. Just find some different actresses, please. The next thing, I mean, it does say Evelyn is specifically Cuban. Please find a Cuban actress. I know that the Latinx community, like, just from reading reviews of Jane the Virgin and other, like, Latinx shows that I watch, you know, Latinx people aren't interchangeable. 
hope that they find a good Cuban actress to play Evelyn because the Cuban community deserves that. I just really hope that this show, when it's made, gets across that sort of idea that the golden age of Hollywood isn't as golden as everyone thinks it is. And Yeah, because ultimately I think Evelyn Hugo is kind of like the hidden history mm. of queer actors in Hollywood. Uh. If you look at like biographies by actors like from that period who remained closeted during that time they're really quite interesting and Reed definitely drew a lot of inspiration from those i'm keen to see who they cast as the husbands i know we've talked about evelyn a lot but i am keen i hope they cast some absolute mm-hmm. bastards <laughs> yes or they just go really chaotic oh yeah not necessarily bastards but like <laughs> just really weird i know like Daniel Radcliffe. I was just thinking that. <laughs> he could be Harry. <gasps> Stop. Again, but please. <laughs> Who would you cast as Celia? I don't know because Celia is supposed to be like a white blonde lady and I just, you know, you know how white lesbians and bi women see a skinny white lady who's blonde and they're like, oh, she's a lesbian? Like, I feel like you have a very big pool of contenders for Celia. Oh, that's the other thing. Sorry, one final thing that I hope. Because that's the, the person from the L word doing this, that this, pro- this is very unlikely to happen. But I'm begging on my hands and knees. I do not want to see straight women having to press their mouths together so that they don't get cooties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, find someone who's yeah. comfortable. If you pick a straight actress, find someone who's comfortable with, with doing the kissy yeah. kiss. Yeah, look, I don't want a repeat of Jenny's Wedding. Um, I think that's the worst movie. Or Carol. Or Carol. Or fucking yep. Ammonite's probably going to be like that. It looks like it's going to be like that. Or Killing Eve. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Anyways, so, yeah, moving on to Hollywood 2020. I think Hollywood is also very underwritten in this regard because, like, despite the show being about championing diversity, it's often very shallow in how it portrays how their ethnicities shape them as people. Oh, yes. Um, It bothers me less in this than it does in Evelyn Hugo because TV is simply just a much more collaborative medium than a novel. Yes. So even though Ryan Murphy is a white gay man, half the show is directed by women of colour like Jessica Yu and Janet Mock, who also co-wrote the two episodes that she directed. Also, crazily enough, Hollywood 2020, it's one of the few diverse shows where the casting is actually racially accurate. Oh, um, I know. Like, I actually can't name another show that is right now, re- like, racking my brains. I cannot tell you because it's so rare. It is really rare. Also, for what it's worth, the actors that are playing gay characters are gay or by themselves as well Incredible. in this, which is cool. It shows, too. I bring this up because they're, I'd say, the main character? I don't know if you call The main character is supposed to be Jack, but he's freaking useless and we're not going to talk about he's him. He's so uninteresting. So we're just going to talk about Raymond Ainsley as if he's the main character. Raymond Ainsley, can you explain Raymond Ainsley to us, Mary? Raymond Ainsley, I thought, was going to be a literal version of me in the 1950s if I was a man. (laughs) But actually, he's not like me at all in a lot of ways. (laughs) Because, you know, I would respect my girlfriend, like, no offense, but like, you know, if if Laura Harrier were my girlfriend, I would respect her. But anyway, um, so Raymond Ainsley was played by Darren Chris, who, in case people didn't know, Darren Chris um, is half Filipino, but white passing. And Raymond Ainsley, much like Darren Chris, is also a white passing Filipino man. 
in Hollywood post-World War II. Raymond Ainsley is not a real person. I should reiterate this. Raymond Ainsley is a made-up person, and according to the interviews that I looked up, Raymond Ainsley was inspired primarily by Steven Spielberg. I was actually quite surprised when I read that. I was like, oh, you know, because I, as I've said for the Evelyn Hugo part, there are a lot of white-passing people in Hollywood that you could draw inspiration from. Mm. So I was a bit surprised when... The inspiration for Raymond was for Steven Spielberg, um, drawing inspiration from his experiences, from Steven's experiences as a Jewish man. But um, Raymond Ainsley, um, in this story, he is a director, up-and-coming director, who wants to use his white-passing privilege like a good boy. I guess this is where I thought like he would be a lot like me. He wants to use his white-passing privilege to uplift people in Hollywood who otherwise like probably wouldn't get work with white directors. His girlfriend is a black woman called Camille Washington, who is very visibly black, played by Laura Harrier. But he also, the first scene we meet Raymond, and I actually think this is legit actually my favourite scene in the whole thing. I don't know why I love this scene so much. But um, he goes and sees Anna Mae Wong, who is a very famous old Hollywood Chinese-American actress. He goes and sees Anna Mae Wong and talks to her about wanting to cast her in a movie that he's making because he believes that how she was treated in her previous films has been shameful and he wants to make it right because he's half Asian himself and Anna Mae Wong is like, <gasps> what? Oh my God. It really wasn't as simple as, oh, you can pass, therefore like you're okay and nobody's ever going to question you. This is part of Hollywood because Hollywood on Netflix is very much a fantasy. The idea that Raymond could just go around being like, yeah, I'm half Asian. <laughs> not receive any kind of consequence for that is not exactly true as we know from Merle and Freddie's experiences. So yeah, Raymond is a very interesting character, but as Dee said, I do think his the way his racial identity has shaped him is quite limiting. I remember like before Hollywood came out, um Darren Chris was obviously giving interviews to various publications about his character and he was talking about how excited he was to be playing a half Filipino character and he said that he was very interested in looking at how privilege comes into play because this is something that he is very aware mm. of. I remember linking one of those interviews to you because I know that you're interested in this mm. stuff. Even though it's like exciting, may have been exciting for you to see Darren Chris play a character who's specifically white passing and like trying to use his privilege to uplift other people of color, as I know you very much want to mm. do, Mary. Yes. As a Southeast Asian who's extremely interested in Southeast Asian cinema and actors and just stories of the diaspora. Yeah. I found that his characterization fell flat in that regard. Oh yeah, like I Raymond felt kinda, that too. Raymond, he kind of just goes around saying, yeah, my mom's Filipino. And <laughs> yeah. uh, people are like, no way. And that's it. And then it. they move on from that's that. That's it. Which like, is, there's no I feel thing. like that's how every single real life conversation I've had about Darren Chris's ethnicity has gone. Like I'm mixed, but I've never really been able to relate to media about mixed identity because it's always about people who are half white mm. and it will often only focus on how their proximity to whiteness and sometimes how white passing they are like how that colonizes the other half of their heritage mm. and i think by focusing in that way these texts don't really end up representing anything meaningful no. about the actual culture of color that these people are meant to be a part of no. it's kind of like a sneaky way of being like oh we're so progressive but also like seeming progressive but actually still centering whiteness which i don't really care for darren chris's portrayal of raymond ainsley while i do appreciate the intention 
of interrogating white passing privilege, it just really came across as who is the most palatable person we can come up with? Mm. Like who? what is the most palatable version of a person of colour we can come up with? Yeah, that's how a lot of mixed identity media comes across as. That's the whole thing of it in, in Hollywood is that that's the only time he brings up his heritage is when he's like, mm-hmm. I'm half Asian, that's why I want to do this. And it's like, you don't even the see... The only Asian person he, that he interacts with is anime one. Yeah. You, you don't see well. his family, you don't get an idea of what his family background is in terms of like, okay, well, there's obviously a history, a very specific history of that time of Asian people coming to America. Especially Filipino people in America, like especially given what America was doing to the Philippines and to Filipino people after World War Two, It just seems such a shame to gloss over what could have been such a specific and extremely rare exploration of this specific racial identity back to the beginning of my point i wanted to say like because tv is so collaborative and like because this character is being played by someone who is actually half filipino and who we know has his filipino heritage overlooked quite often and is certainly aware of the privilege that he guests at the cost of that cultural Mm. erasure underwritten as it was it did feel less hollow than evelyn hugo did to me I feel like you can feel like Darren Chris like having a real good time because he's like, yay, I'm playing yeah. someone. I wonder like if there maybe were more scenes like that and they just were cut out of the show because they didn't yeah, fit in. Yeah, I would have something. loved more scenes with with him and Anime Wong because that's literally like my favorite scene is that first scene. And like also the way that he spoke about it, it really felt like there would be more. Maybe he was just selling it that way. Anyways, believe it or not, there are actually gays in Hollywood. Like gay people. No way. I'm talking about the show, not in real life. There are no gay people in real life Hollywood. The first gay character I want to talk about in Hollywood 2020 is Mm -hmm. Dick Samuels. He's played by Joe Mantello, (gasps) who is gay. Our means. He's a producer at the studio and is the underrated, underappreciated backbone of the entire business. He's also an extremely closeted gay man in his 50s and has never allowed himself to interact romantically or sexually with another man out of fear for what it might do to his career and just to his general safety and well-being. Dick is my favourite character in this whole thing. Honestly, the best scene, (laughs) literally the best scene, I think, in this show is the scene between Dick Samuels and Rock Hudson Mm. in that cabin. Yeah. It is, like, such a moving scene. Man, it made me cry. Such a good performance, honestly, from both of them. But, yeah, that scene is really moving. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I really like media that articulates repression and isolation and just depression involved when you're gay. So I did really appreciate this aspect of the show with Dick Samuels. I love Joe Mantella's performance. He's also just a really funny character, like, when he's not being sad. He really is. Also, like, his friendship with... Holland Taylor. What's her name? Ellen Kikay. I forget. Um, I but it was Elaine. Played by... But anyway. Played by lesbian icon Holland Taylor. Oh, they're amazing. best friends, and their scenes together are my favorite. Dick, he just has, like, a really beautiful arc of him coming out of the closet to his friends and thereby coming out of his shell, and it's just really nice to see... Spoilers for the end of this series, but I am so freaking mad at Ryan Murphy for forgetting which character he gave cancer to. That was so mean. (laughs) 
That was honestly, so I was appalled. Stupid. I was that was appalled. so stupid. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? I, I mean, I still think that other guy. I forget his name, but he was an interesting character. Ernie. But oh yeah, Ernie yeah, is Ernie. super. Most of the characters are super interesting, in that they're just very odd. Like they're very strange and weird, and it's like, what the hell is going to happen next with these people? Because I don't understand them. <laughs> So that's something to keep you going for seven episodes if you're interested. So I really love this scene with Joe Mantello and Holland Taylor where she has a crush on Dick and she decides to, because they've been friends for so long and she really loves him, so she decides to try it out to see if like there is any kind of romance there. And obviously that's the scene where he comes out to her. What I love is it's like a really nice subversion of the coming out confession scene. I've seen so much gay media where a gay person comes out to a person who they're into and that person has to be like, sorry, I'm straight. So it was quite nice to see his friend instead telling him like, I'm in love with you and he's being like, sorry, I'm gay. It was just really nice. Like, I still think, I think it's really sad that Holland Taylor didn't get to play a lesbian, but but yeah, it's just touching scene and they're like... You know, I don't want this to affect our friendship. And he's like, never. Yeah, I know. And you just, when he said that, I was knowing. like, oh. Like, you, they just, they they love each other so much. <laughs> I know. Like, friendship, bitches. Like, that's where the good it content really is. is. Friendship. Something I've realized, especially, because I guess because I'm watching a lot of movies because we all are inside. Mm-hmm. But honestly, like, movies about friendships, mm-hmm. where the plot is driven by friendships or even TV shows about friendships. Yeah. Like, are just so much more compelling yeah. than romance. I mean, not to say that romance can't be compelling, too. Yeah. But, you know, when I think about the films I've watched this year that I mm-hmm. really, really love, friendship is very much at the core. And treating friendship as something as complex and nuanced as romance. It's and good. I just appreciate that. And Hollywood has a lot of that, actually. Hollywood 2020. Yeah, Hollywood yeah, 2020. Hollywood the show. Hollywood Netflix. Not Hollywood so the much show. the real one, unfortunately. No. I especially love LGBT media that's about friendship because I don't see yeah. myself in romance. I feel like when you're gay, yes, having a relationship is really nice. Mm-hmm. Like being in love is really nice. But I feel like your friends are going to be around a lot longer. Mm. And your friends are going to be more constants in your life. Mm. And we deserve media that shows that. Yeah. You know, that's why I guess it's frustrating when people think that because something, a show is just about a gay person and their gay friends and there's no romance. They're like, oh, well, it's not gay. I'm like, are you serious? This is the gayest thing ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gays being friends, that's gay. Having a logical family? Yeah. Anyway, so Dick Samuels, he's introduced when Raymond comes to him to pitch his anime Wong movie and he gives him a pile of scripts. And he tells him if he's able to make a hit out of one of these scripts, then he can make his movie with Anime Wong. So he picks Peg based on the real-life tragedy of actress Peg Edtwistle, which is written by another gay character, Archie Coleman. He's played by Jeremy Pope, who is like my next favorite character, I guess, in the whole thing. He's a gay black screenwriter who does sex work alongside the main character, Jack, who, as we said, is useless in order to survive before he can get his big break in Hollywood. He wrote the screenplay for Peg about a sad white woman because 
he doesn't want to be pigeonholed for like colored only release movies and he wants his work mm-hmm. to shine amongst the mainstream writers. So that's where Raymond comes in to help trying to uplift his work. Even though Archie's really talented, something I appreciate about the show is it's not really about marginalized people being excellent enough to push mm-hmm. boundaries. It's about how marginalized people, they need a template for success to aspire to. Yes, and they need to meet the template. Mm-hmm. As I said, this show, the show's casting, it's racially accurate and also sexual orientation is accurate. Like Jeremy Pope, he's a gay black man. Seeing him fight to create that template for other people of color, it made me so emotional in the last episode when he does that speech. It yeah. hit me anyway, because you know that he gets it. That's something that's nice about this show in general, like as shallow as it is. It's also genuine. It's like genuinely shallow. Even when it's shallow, it's like really genuine. Like you can tell that the people Mm. that it's coming from are really genuine. Archie's boyfriend is a fictionalized version of Rock Hudson. Those two are super cute. I love them. They are super cute, but I still don't understand. Like, can you please explain to me? why they decided to make Rock Hudson so stupid in this. Okay, yeah, I was going to get to that. So so the next gay character, that was my segue to Rock Hudson, (laughs) okay? Excellent. So based on the real-life actor who spent most of his career closeted until he was diagnosed with AIDS, I don't know a huge amount about the real Rock Hudson, but this version is very sweet and very much a himbo, sometimes to a fault. I do remember thinking several times he can't actually have been this dumb. No. He is known to have been a really good actor. I think the reason that they decided to make him this way is this show because it's supposed to be just like the very beginning of his career. His screen test for Peg, which needs like 40 takes to get right, I looked it up. It is based on a real story when early in his career, his agent landed him a cameo in a war movie where he had one line and it took him around 40 takes to get correct. So I think... So I think like... Yeah, I know. (laughs) No, I'm sorry then. If that's, if that's, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I feel bad for being like, was he actually this dumb? But like, yeah, he just, he just didn't know and was kind of just like shoved into the spotlight very early. So I guess Aww. in this sense, this fictionalized version of him is supposed to kind of show that kind of baby bird pushed out of the nest sort of thing. We're supposed to be like, he's baby. Yeah. Yeah, he very much is. Okay. Which brings me to the last gay character that I'm going to discuss, Henry Wilson. <gasps> I have much to say. So he is Rock Hudson's agent, and he's based on a real person. He's being played by Jim Parsons in this. Who is also actually gay. So Henry Wilson was known for boosting the careers of good-looking, beefy men like Rock Hudson, regardless of their acting talent, by using his connections to land them roles. He was another closeted gay man, but also a notorious sexual predator. He extorted his clients in return for helping their careers to the point where all of his clients were assumed by everyone in the industry to be either gay, bisexual, or quote-unquote cooperative because... Yikes. What a horrible word. So, yeah, just a very... he's He was not a good person, basically. And Hollywood 2020 does depict such an abusive relationship with him and Rock Hudson. And the way that this was handled in the show is actually quite appalling to me. Henry Wilson, he's presented as by far the most despicable and harmful person in this show. But then he very suddenly has a jarring change of direction and becomes friends with all the Meg team and ends up being pivotal to their success in a very lazy, haphazard kind of redemption arc type thing. 
And I do not care for that shit at all. No. I No. Aside from inappropriate, I also found it quite sudden. Mm. And just really tone deaf, I think. From a writing perspective, I didn't feel we had seen enough of mm. Henry Wilson coming to terms with what he did. There's a lot of talk about redemption arcs in the writing community online. And I think the key to any good redemption arc is very, very simple. You have to actually show your character not just realising they're wrong. That's not enough. Mm. Like, that is absolutely not enough. You have to actually show them making amends and atoning for what they did. And Hollywood 2020 skips over that Mm. with Henry Wilson. There is no build-up. There is just a scene where Rock Hudson is minding his own business, eating his lunch, and Henry sits down and says to him, out of the blue, I realise what I did to you is really wrong and I'm really sorry. I mean, I suppose the good thing about this is that Rock says, well, I'm not going to forgive you Yeah, because I still have nightmares about what you did to me and I don't think they'll ever go away and I don't think I can ever forgive you for it, which it would have been great if the scene had just ended there. It would have been fantastic, actually, Mm -hmm. if Henry Wilson got up and walked away. No, but the scene keeps going, unfortunately. Yeah. And it turns out that Henry Wilson is making a gay romance film about two men and he wants Rock to be in it. Mm -hmm. And Rock's like, oh, I'll think about it. But it's very heavily implied that he's going to do it. Yeah, the next scene cuts to them doing it. Cuts to them filming. That is supposedly the redemption arc, is that, okay, well now... Rock is working for Henry again, and this time, assumedly, Henry is not being a horrible person to him. And we, as the audience, are just meant to go, oh, well, that's that's great then. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this outcome really disregards the feelings of victims, mm. survivors. I mean, I'm sure there are still people who who are alive in Hollywood that remember Henry Wilson. Mm. I know there are because I've read interviews about Henry Wilson since Hollywood 2020 came out. Mm. I don't know how respectful this scene is to people Not just who the scene, but just at, this whole arc. Yeah, this whole arc. I really think that it's one of the weakest points. I think that's probably the best way I can put it, but it's also deeply disrespectful and tone deaf as you say and all of that being said I would like to really commend Jim Parsons on the performance because it is truly really good yeah maybe on some level it's not super weird but just suddenly once the Meg team once he starts to realize that there is a benefit in helping the Meg team and getting a piece of the success that they might achieve he very suddenly switches directions and it becomes like their friend and a nice person but yeah it is just very abrupt the things that you see Henry doing in the early episodes are horrifying. Oh my god. They're horrifying and also they're the worst things that you see even happen in this show. Just a bad decision all around. I have to admit, I am a person who very much, I don't like watching sex scenes. I've never really seen a movie where I've gone, well that was, I'm so glad that that was in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just a personal thing with me. I knew, obviously, from the trailer that was obviously going to be sex scenes in the show. There is a lot of very explicit sex scenes in the show. 
that I wasn't expecting. The way it, the, those scenes are framed with Henry, they're just very confronting. And I just say that as a warning to anyone who maybe hasn't seen Hollywood. The scenes with Henry, they don't get to the point where they become sex scenes. Like, it's just like, you know, a sexual assault is about to happen right before it cuts to the next scene. But yeah, there's a lot of titty in this show much titty yes i read an interview with ryan murphy where he was asked oh what was it like working with netflix and most people are just like oh yeah distribution models whatever but he's just like oh yeah this is the first time that i've done like this much nudity in something just because i could definitely you do get a sense that all the nudity in this show is very much just done because it's like a novelty to ryan murphy to be able to do this (laughs) i guess i do want to mention i really like this show in the sense that it is very much about privilege ryan murphy does a really good job in showing how every character has different degrees of privilege Mm. and how hollywood how they interact with the industry because of the varying degree of privilege that they have i found that very interesting to see that portrayed across so many different characters in relation to age in relation to gender in relation to race in relation to sexuality obviously you know in relation to class as well i found that very interesting to see that represented so widely even if it was not always done in the deepest of ways i think the attempt is still something to be admired the opinions of this show have been a bit polarized definitely and i've noticed some people watching this show and their takeaway is that ryan murphy and co are trying to say well if marginalized people just tried harder then it would have happened for them But I really disagree with that because this show does place a lot of emphasis on people in positions of power like Dick, like Henry, but also Avis and Ellen. And I think what this show is saying is that if people in positions of power cared about marginalized people, it could have been better for them. And also I think because it's a fantasy, it may look like post-war Hollywood, but the conditions and privileges more closely resemble present-day Hollywood in a way of saying that this is what people in positions of power should be doing now, but they still won't. The last episode is a very convenient and bubbly fairy tale where the film Meg becomes a huge success at the Oscars and they win Best Picture and Camille wins Best Actress and Raymond wins Best Director and Archie Best Screenplay and Anna Mae Wong wins Best Supporting Actress. And I think this episode and just this show as a whole is designed to put real life present day Hollywood to shame to highlight how it actually hasn't progressed very far at all. The finale episode is titled A Hollywood Ending because Hollywood endings just don't exist in Hollywood. One of my favourite podcasts that talks about culture and media culture is Still Processing, hosted by Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham. They actually spoke about Hollywood on an episode of Still Processing called New Loop America and something that Jenna brought up that I think is a really good perspective to acknowledge because I do think it's an interesting point of view. I don't know how much I agree with it. I definitely agree with it to a certain extent. But she talked about, and I guess it's something that we spoke about as well with Raymond Ainsley's character, just how in many instances this, even though it's clearly an alternate history show, talking about a specific alternate history for this specific moment, it doesn't really connect to the wider history of the time the show is set in. Yeah. And as a result, it's not a very successful alternate history text. I think it's a very successful fantasy text because it's just being like, what if this happened? Which is fine. But as an alternate history, Jenna brings up the fact that because it doesn't really 
talk about how the wider things that were going on in America during this time period that directly would have affected these people, things like immigrants being put in internment camps and Jim Crow and all these other things that were happening at the time. It just fails to give these characters a deeper dimension to them, especially characters like Archie, who are fighting so hard to get black representation on screen, like why that's important at that point in time. And that's what we were talking about with Darren Chris and Raymond's character, how he doesn't really talk about being Filipino beyond just oh yeah, I'm half Filipino. You know, they could have even had scenes where he was cooking Filipino food for his girlfriend or like something even as small as that. But there really isn't an engagement with that kind of stuff. And I just think that's a point to bring up. And I do agree with Jenna on that, what she said and still processing about it being an alternate history text that doesn't seem to want to engage with the history it's trying to be alternate to, which makes it more of a fantasy. Mm. It's very much a fantasy where none of these marginalized people suffer any of the consequences that they would have had to deal with just for existing in this period. Back then, you had the Hays Code, you had miscegenation laws, homosexuality was criminalized, not to mention segregation, and a load of other horrible forms of systematic oppression. And in regards to alternate history, I think because they weave in all these real-life people and appropriate certain true events into this story the way hollywood 2020 has presented these nuggets of truth in a way that's so blatantly fabricated it encourages viewers to seek out the truth for themselves we've talked about how in our biopic episode there's a danger to biopics where they encourage you to take them at face value and not question any of the creative decisions they made They'll often oversimplify or understate certain historic events and people, but because it says, like, based on a true story, not enough of the audience is going to look too closely. With Hollywood 2020 being an alternate history and fantasy, it has the opposite effect, because you see Rock Hudson, you see Anime Wong, you see Hannah McDaniel, and you learn things about them, but you know it's not quite true. This is clearly a show for adults, and most adults are smart enough to realize this. Even I found myself googling if Raymond Ainsley was a real person. The people who make biopics, they want you to take them at face value and trust what they're saying is true. The people who made this show tell you not to trust what you're seeing and to look for yourself. And people have definitely been looking for themselves. If you google this show, you'll find over a hundred different articles on the real story behind Hollywood. So this show has certainly succeeded in like sparking a curiosity and also a scrutiny towards this period of history and the audience are like flocking to read all these pieces about these real people and to learn why the happy endings that this show presents us with could never have happened in real life due to the aforementioned despicable atrocities of that era and people are learning through their own research about all the awful things from this era that prevented marginalized people from achieving their dreams and people are learning about the awful way anime wong and hannah mcdaniels are treated with evelyn hugo being very referential hollywood 2020 is also a good jumping point to make people interested in this period i definitely recommend that people watch for instance be kind rewind on youtube to find out more about these actresses or listen to the podcast you must remember this which goes through old Hollywood stories and rumors and things like that. But yeah, I like that there's enough truth in Hollywood 2020 to make you curious about what really happened. People are realizing just how tainted and unglamorous this industry's period of history actually was. 
which I think is just a better way to go about getting your information, honestly, because there's no way a biopic can actually go in depth enough as like looking at a vast range of sources that have more of a responsibility to tell you the truth than a movie does. Yes. As we always say, be critical of what you watch. Yeah. I mean, you should be doing that anyway, but mm. it's very important when you watch something like Hollywood, because I think people should always be critical of portrayals of history, even when they're being written by marginalized people. Everyone's perspective is limited. Everyone's yeah. perspective is biased. And obviously, there's only so much that shows can actually show you. I mean, even though we've called out Hollywood as a show for not really engaging with the history and the wider context, there is often not time to show you everything. So you should really always do your own research or at least be aware that everything I'm seeing is not the only thing that was there. Yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed Hollywood. It was a nice seven hours. I, I don't did regret enjoy it. it. Yeah. Yeah, I had, a, I had a good old time. And if nothing else, I got to see Queen Latifah again. On a screen. I love that. Okay, now we are on to Bojack. Our show, our problematic fave, Bojack Horseman. I feel like Bojack is in the vein more of Evelyn Hugo, but also parodying as well as analogizing. I like that it has a lot of really nice casual LGBT representation. I think it's just a decent amount, really. But there are several gay characters who are key to certain plot lines and seasons, so we're going to talk about some of them today. So Bojack, if you think of it as being all about the effect that Hollywood has on people and their relationships, the way that LGBT people in Bojack are represented is very true to that. A lot of it is quite tragic, but it's also quite realistic. There's lots of nice casual LGBT rep throughout the show, but of the major characters, the first one I want to talk about is Herb Kazaz. Herb Kazaz, voiced by Stanley Tucci, he's Bojack's best friend from before he was famous, who helped him in his comedy career and created the sitcom that shot Bojack to stardom, Horsin' Around. Herb is, you know, introduced in season one, and it's revealed that midway through Horsin' Around's run in the 90s, Herb got arrested for public indecency and was outed. Knowing that the network wanted to fire him, Herb asked Bojack, the star of the show, to back him up and threaten to walk if they did fire Herb. Bojack then has a meeting with the president of the network, Angela Diaz, who threatens Bojack's career. And because Bojack is selfish, he abandons Herb and his promise to support him. With this act of betrayal, Herb is, I think, the first major casualty of Bojack's corruption. Throughout the series, we don't actually get to hear a lot from Herb himself. Like He's only in about eight episodes, actually. But we learn that after mm. he was driven out of Hollywood due to homophobia, he does eventually become a huge philanthropist and activist and ended up living quite a good life. We also see him in flashbacks, and he serves as kind of a moral indicator to the show. But in season one, that betrayal is shown to be like the first of one of the lowest points of moral depravity that Bojack has ever fell to. Yeah, and I feel like Herb haunts Bojack because mm. he was Bojack's best friend. I think the episode where you meet Herb and the fact that Herb says, I don't forgive you, very simply, like, I don't forgive yeah. you. I've lived a good life and all of this, but I don't forgive you and I don't have to forgive you. Like, mm -hmm. you have to live with what you've done. I remember watching that scene for the first time and thinking this show is amazing mm -hmm. because 
I just love the subversion of that expectation. Just for context, 20 years later after this happens, Bojack visits Herb after finding out he's dying of cancer and finally apologizes oh, to yeah, him. Oh, right, sorry. So Herb doesn't forgive him, and it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole show because Bojack thinks he's being mm. like so magnanimous offering this apology at all this time, so he gets frustrated because Herb is just not having it, and why would he? This was definitely the moment where I really fell in love with this show because season one of Bojack mm. Horseman, it's very easy to dismiss as kind of family guy-ish. Yeah. But when Herb gets introduced in this way, this is where it really takes a turn and starts to delve into much deeper concepts, which is like the best thing about this show and why there are so many people that love this show because it's not just that kind of stupid humor. It actually yeah. uses the space of this ridiculous comedy with all these talking animals to like actually talk about serious things, which I love. Herb is like, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to appease your guilt. I'm not going to give you closure because you don't deserve it. You don't get to have it after what you did to me. Uh, something that I think is interesting to note is the show never really actually frames Bojack as being homophobic, like as an individual but as part of a system and industry that is homophobic. There are like several instances yeah. throughout the series where he's presented as being casually accepting of gay people, like that wedding crush episode with Tessa Thompson and also his interactions with Dr. Mm. Champ in the last season. But what I like with Herb's story is that they're saying it's not enough to be just tolerant and kind to individuals. You need to be actively supporting mm. and sticking up for us. Kind of like it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be anti-racist. Yeah, yeah. you should be using your privilege oh. to help protect people in a certain industry environments as well as just society as a whole. You need to be fighting that system because complacency, even if and especially when it benefits you, makes you part of that system. So yeah, I really yeah. like that the show does this. I also like that Herb is sort of a cornerstone of... Bojack's conscience. As you get to know Bojack and his past, you soon realize that Herb is not the first person who Bojack hurt like that. It's just that for Bojack, Herb was the first time he felt guilty yeah. about what he did. Because you realize, especially in the later seasons, that he hurt a lot of people mm -hmm. before he hurt Herb, notably Sarah Lynn, Sharona. Who works on the show as well? Four, five seasons, four seasons at least. Betraying Herb is the first of the low points that you see with Bojack in the timeline until we learn about more. Herb is supposedly this big cornerstone, but he is really just a large incident in a series of small and big and medium-sized incidents and decisions where Bojack has hurt people. But this is more um, just things that I observe in the Bojack Horseman fandom. I really do not believe that Bojack is gay in any way just because he is accepting of, of Herb. I think the idea that people who are accepting of gay people are secretly gay is just as toxic as the idea in a different way that people who hate gay people are secretly gay. Mm. It's just like... No. No, I was looking for resources to prepare for this episode, and I am really mad that when you search up LGBT representation in Bojack Horseman, everything is just talking about Todd. But I'm not going to get into that. But I did come across this article that's just like, I believe that Bojack is a closeted gay or bisexual man. I'm like, oh man, no. 
No. <laughs> no. Because if he was, well, I'm not even going to, no. I'm no, that would it. be, that's so it. fucking homophobic <laughs> to think that. But it really is. No, I don't know. I actually realize that I don't really interact with the BoJack Horseman fandom so much. It's just that most of my really close friends also really love BoJack as much as me. So I can just talk to them about it and I don't feel the need to like actually interact with the fandom of BoJack Horseman. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself interacting with it, but I do go into the tag occasionally and I, I am exposed oh. to it and I'm like, oh my God, this is what you people think. Mm. <laughs> I just have five people. Please stop interpreting a thing I like incorrectly. I think no. that's the ideal place that you need to be with all of your favorite things. <laughs> but unfortunately, mm. you can't always have that and that's what fandom's for. So yeah, I do like the fact that the show takes a look at the systematic homophobia of Hollywood. Speaking of, so major spoilers for the final season of Bojack Horseman, but in the third last episode, there's a flashback to Herb's scandal, except this time it's told from this perspective of Angela Diaz, the network president. So we find out that her threats to Bojack were bluffs, and she tricked him into thinking he had no choice in that situation when actually he had all the power. We learn that she was trying to sell the network to Disney, and Bojack was threatening that huge financial gain from never happening for her. We also find out from a very casual throwaway line that she herself is gay, and this whole episode is just like a punch in the gut. Because Angela, trying to protect her place in the industry, turned on her own kind. And I think the way that she reacts to hearing about Herb when she gets the facts and reads it, I think it implies that she did know that Herb was gay already. Because of these mm. systems of oppression, uh, they're like designed so that even the people who are like you, who understand everything you're going through, even they will have to throw you under the bus. I'm not saying this in defense of Angela Diaz, like she's a horrible fucking person anyway. But I remember watching that episode with you for the first time and like that was gut-wrenching. I don't even think I really registered it at mm. first until I think the second time I watched the second half of the season. Mm-hmm. I guess because we watched it all in one go, yeah, we so watched I was it all absorbing in one everything go. and I did One thing I will say, <laughs> the episode prior to this episode about Angela, it ends with a whole thing about Todd's mom, and we haven't met Todd's mom at this point. I remember thinking, like, have we actually met Todd's mom already earlier in the series and just not realized? And then I remember that Angela episode starting and I see Angela and she has blue hair and I'm like, oh my God, she has blue hair. She's Todd's mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know that's stupid, but like, I don't know. I think that would have been a lot more interesting (laughs) than what they actually did with Todd's mom, but whatever. The Todd's mom plot is I just had to say that. Random, it was very but... random. I feel like they were like, hmm, how are we going to incorporate mommy issues into this show now that Bojack's mom is dead? And they tried it. I appreciate them for trying it. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on Angela or Herb? Or just I any guess... re- general comments? The things you want to get out sad... of your chest? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess the thing that I think about a lot is that Herb and Angela both had very different experiences in Hollywood. I mean, Herb was outed early on and outed from Hollywood itself. Angela Diaz, as far as we know, was probably not outed. Mm. But both of them end up alone in big houses. And both of them end up with this strange relationship to Bojack and... I don't really know. I don't have a finished thought about that other than 
it's just sad to me. You know, Angela Diaz did did that to Herb and probably did it to others. Mm. And for what? You know, when you see her, like, disgustingly huge mansion and it's Angelica Houston's voice, so you know it feels super evil. The vibes are just Mm. rancid. Vibes are disgusting. Parallels between her and Herb are very interesting, Mm. like the visual ones at least, but... Maybe it's to symbolize that regardless of what Hollywood thinks of you, what it does to you, like the mental toll, is going to be the same regardless. Mm. I love Herb as a character. Yeah, there's just like a warmth to him. Like in all the flashbacks, like it just feels so nice seeing that friendship. That's also just the, the effect of Stanley Tucci. Yeah. Stanley Tucci, I hear his voice and I'm like, oh, this is like a white mm. uncle. Like, I don't, his voice makes me really happy. I've never seen The Lovely Bones. Apparently he's very yeah. freaky and scary. But also he's kind of unrecognizable killer, but, in that. You know, I've only ever lie. seen him play characters like her. Yeah, he, he plays a lot of gay characters. Oh, good. Thank goodness. I think. And he should be allowed to do that. I know he's he not. Is he gay though? <laughs> but I have no problem with that because he's always just a really nice. I know, right? What? I know. Don't. It's... I know. What? I'm sorry. I'm shook. Oh my god, no, I thought he was gay this whole time. Like, literally my whole life. I'm like, I'm, I'm so I'm sorry. I'm so right sorry. Like, that's why I thought it's funny in ECA when the mum's like, I was mar- I was in love with a gay man once for a long time. A really long time. Just side note, I'm really and, looking forward to that. Is like, Dear Lord. I'm really looking forward to that Stanley Tucci Colin Firth gay bromance movie because, like, they are the only two straight white men who I who are just, like, my favourite gay icons <laughs> and they're together in that movie oh my god i'm literally gonna bring this up in therapy i'm like i'm gonna say to my psychologist like i found out that stanley tucci isn't gay and i'm like really i'm really upset because i mean even in that stupid movie with christina aguilera that i love the stupid musical that i love and he's the the manager of the bar but good for him though um, i was re-watching do- devil was prada a few months back and i realized they never actually mentioned once that his character is gay but like you know and I was like, this is excellent queer coding. Not excellent, because but like, it's yeah, it's just- <laughs> King. He is a king. I can't believe I'm sorry. this. I'm really oh sorry. And I'm also, also I just, I extend this to any listeners who maybe only just found out that Stanley Tucci is straight. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, I will be fine. I'll work through it. This is like when I found out Gillian Anderson was British all over again. This is just shaking me to my very core. Okay. All right. Uh, moving on <laughs> from this revelation. Who are we talking about next? Yeah, Kelsey. Kelsey. We are moving on. Another gay character is Kelsey Jennings. She is a lesbian filmmaker who made a film called Women Who Love Women Who Love Recycling. So, you know, you know that. You know, I had to stand. Um, I'm so mad that this is not a real movie. And she has a major part in season two because she's hired to direct Secretariat, which is a biopic about Bojack's hero growing up where he's cast in the titular role. Oh, my God. Did you know that Secretariat was a real horse? Actually? Secretariat was a real horse. Yeah, I'm not joking. That's cool. My dad told me this because... For our listeners, my dad recently just binged BoJack. That was his quarantine binge. He binged it for the first time and it was really fun watching my dad watch my favorite show. And he 
said to me, he was like, it's so strange that seeing Secretariat as a human sort of character. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And dad was like, Secretariat's a real horse. I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, Secretariat was widely regarded as like the most legendary racehorse of all time. There's a 2010 movie. Margot Martindale is in that movie. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, what? <laughs> Character actress the Margot layers. Martindale. <laughs> the layers to this. Oh my goodness, secretary. Oh, Nelson Ellis is in this too. She was. Okay. Revelation after this revelation is... today. The minds of the of the Bojack team. Yep, was an American thoroughbred. Oh, they he even looks like Secretariat. Oh. Yeah, like, like his little, thing. like his it's little like diamond horse. on his face. Nice, the accuracy. Not gonna lie, like so every cool. all horse movies all make right. me cry. Anyway, moving on. I'm probably on. gonna watch this. Um, anyway, <laughs> so yeah, Kelsey is hired to direct the Secretariat movie. I like her a lot. She's very no nonsense to the point where it's like hilarious. She's just completely deadpan and cool and so funny. Still, the fact that she has to be. Like, super deadly serious so that people will respect her because her place in Hollywood is very low indeed. Like she's not even in Hollywood really because she's constantly pigeonholed as nope. an indie darling and she makes very small films with very tiny budgets and receives critical acclaim but her career is never actually given the opportunity to grow. I think this reflects a lot about yeah. how a lot of directors who are openly lesbian or bisexual women are treated in this industry. They're discouraged from telling stories about their communities and their experiences. And often the only way that they can advance and make a name for themselves in the mainstream is if they tell stories that do not reflect their sexualities so directly. I think that's why Kelsey no. Jennings worked on Secretariat, because it seems like that's the point in her career. I love Kelsey Jennings. Do you know how hard it is to be an indie darling? You really do. I say that every single day. <laughs> She's so <laughs> iconic. She's so good and she and she loves Todd. So, you know, that's that's the lesbian mood, I think. But yeah, so season two has Kelsey just as a major character because she's directing the movie until she and Bojack decide to do something that they were explicitly told not to do for the film, like for the art of it. And she is the only one that's punished for this even though it's Bojack's idea to steal this shot for the movie that and they replace her with a fish that's meant to be Michael Bay so yeah Kelsey is fired off the project and she's just cut out of the story entirely we see her again for a brief episode in season three where Bojack tries to apologize to her but fails to <laughs> for reasons very I'm not gonna get fails. into yeah he very deeply fails to apologize to her because he's underwater yeah, it's a great episode. I love that episode so much. It's an award-winning episode. It is. We love that non-verbal comedy, that non-verbal drama. We don't anyway, have to talk. We don't have to talk. Are the Emmys even happening? I have anymore? no idea. I don't, I don't even know. I don't know. Kelsey does <laughs> appear again in the last season of BoJack, and we find out that this whole time she's been in director jail and I feel like that's where the Bojack writers take an opportunity to kind of have that commentary on the way that women directors are treated, are being treated in Hollywood and kind of tokenized. There's a great exchange between her and the bunny, Rutabaga, 
she says to him, where are all these female directors? I keep hearing about how people want to work with female directors, but nobody seems to actually be hiring female directors. And Rutabaga is like, oh, trust me, they want to. They really want to. Where the series ends, she doesn't really interact with Bojack, but where the series ends, Kelsey manages to land a job directing a female superhero film. I have so many thoughts. Called Fireflame. Called Fireflame. I have so many thoughts on the way that Disney Marvel has been hiring indie filmmakers. Please say those thoughts. I have so many thoughts about how Disney Marvel has been hiring a bunch of independent filmmakers to direct their huge budget comic book movies. It's like a facade to be like, oh yes, we care about art, we care about actual creativity, but really they just want to get someone that doesn't have too much power in the industry and so they can control them in that way to doing whatever they want. So many of these movies just take away artistic vision of these directors. A lot of these directors will have really distinct vision that you can see so clearly in the one or two films that they've already made, but then suddenly it'll be, they'll just be put on this like huge budget thing where they don't really get to be creative at all. We know that Disney does this. The Ant-Man film, the Ant-Man film was originally meant to be directed by Edgar Wright, but he said that Disney really didn't want him to do his distinct visual style on the movie. He didn't agree with that, so he left. Like, Disney will hire these directors just as props and tokens to say that they care about filmmaking, but (laughs) there's so much evidence of them firing these directors. For Kelsey Jennings to direct Fireflame, this seems like a happy ending. And I really like her speech at the pitch meeting for that movie. But yeah, I don't know. I can't help but be cynical. And, you know, I hope for Kelsey that it's more like a Birds of Prey type of situation than a fucking Thor Ragnarok type of situation. I don't really have a lot to say about Kelsey Jennings other than I think she is a really very succinct analogy to what happens to a lot of female filmmakers. Kelsey's a lot like Herb. She doesn't appear in that many episodes. She's not what I'd call a major character, but she has a very important role in showcasing what happens to women in creative roles in in the industry. I do like the casual representation of how they show that she is gay. It's not done through romance or anything. Like you meet her daughter, you hear her. You hear her talk about her ex-wife. You hear her talking about her divorce. (laughs) We get it, Marla. And her (laughs) ex-wife. You know, the therapist, Diane's therapist, is she gay? Oh, yeah, she is. Yes. Yeah, An icon. The Issa Rae character. She's only in like one episode, though. That was one of the best yeah, episodes. But that's just, that like, is Bojack... the best episode of season five. Int Sub is the best episode of season five. Remember how last year at the Emmys, Bojack lost to the fucking Simpsons? I just think that yep. the Bojack team should not have submitted Free Churro for best animation. Even though Free Churro has like amazing writing, they should have submitted Int Sub because it's just got everything. Like it's got great writing and it's got great visuals. LGBT rep in Bojack Horseman is very casual, but it's still very nuanced, which I like. It's very carefully written, and I appreciate that greatly. 
Yes. I love that it's not kind of treated as a big thing whenever a character is gay, like they kind of just exist. Is there any things that specifically Bojack in relation to Hollywood or Evelyn Hugo that you want to say? I think Bojack as a character and Evelyn Hugo as a character are not so different Mm. in the way they operate in the industry and in the way that power dynamics that they have had have hurt people. I don't want to say like Bojack is coded as a white man, but he he is. He is though. (laughs) Obviously they're not. He is very much coded as the equivalent of a white man. So I was rewatching Bojack and I started from season one when my older brother happened to be over at the house. And so my older brother was watching with me and he was enjoying it. But he, I remember one of the first questions that he asked me about Bojack. He was like, is, who's he supposed to be? Like Charlie Sheen? Yeah, my dad kept asking me that when he was watching it too. Yeah. Bojack is very just like an amalgamation of all the shitty white men, basically. But I do think Bojack and Evelyn Hugo as stories are absolutely about how the ambition that Hollywood creates in people supersedes your intentions towards others. I also like how Bojack and Evelyn Hugo are very much about the idea that Just saying that you're a new person isn't always enough. Just saying, oh, but I've changed to people is not enough. You need to be better. It's not enough to say that you're making amends. Like you do have to make amends to people you have hurt. And I think that's why I like Evelyn Hugo and Bojack's stories. Even when they get their so-called redemption, it's not not a happy ending for them. Yeah. Because... They don't... And it shouldn't be. ...deserve it. I really like that. In terms of connecting Bojack to Hollywood, I don't... I don't know. I see see a bit of Herb in Dick Samuels, or a bit of Dick Samuels in Herb. There's a line, um, I was rewatching The View from halfway down for a little bit because I wanted to see what Herb was saying in that episode. It's weird because it's Bojack's subconscious saying this, but, you know, I feel like this is meant to be Herb's character. But it's also Herb. But it's also Herb anyway. It's important to acknowledge that in his subconscious he knows that Herb would be the one saying it to him. I like that, yeah, Herb is never misconstrued in a misleading way, actually. Herb is kind of just presented as is, even though most of the time he's only presented through memory and we only actually see him present in the one episode. But I like there's a moment where Herb just says, like, after what happened to me and after Hollywood kicked me out, I felt this immense relief. Obviously, Herb was kind of lucky that he was in a position where it did allow him to grow. But like where he was speaking about how he was like finally able to just be himself and do what he wanted to do. That was really nice. Dick Samuels is Herb if Herb stayed in Hollywood. But I like the whole thing about Herb is that he eventually just rejects Hollywood. It's just not good to be gay in Hollywood. Like even just seeing all the out LGBT people in Hollywood and the way that they seem to present like I don't know like it doesn't feel like a good place not just actors but just with filmmakers I feel like when I look at like how D. Reese's career is going and especially if you're a filmmaker who's gay and a person of color it's even worse Mm. what a horrible horrible place what a horrible horrible industry but why do we like these three stories, Dee? Why, why do we like Why do you like them? Why are we interested in them? Well, I love movies anyway. It's so annoying in that everything I love comes from something so horrible. I mean, I do like metafiction a lot. I guess that's why I really love these three stories. I like them all for different reasons, and I hate them all for different reasons, and, and I guess 
the important thing to remember is that LGBT cinema or LGBT television, just LGBT stories aren't really, like, it's not really a genre. No. And even though it's often treated that way, and even though it's easier to talk about it in that way, it's very much not. And I like that these three texts will place LGBT characters in that you don't often see. I'm just, I'm just a big fan of nuanced representations of gayness and also just because it is about creatives, I guess. I'm drawn to it because I can relate to it in a way, even though I don't really want to be a filmmaker at all. Yeah. I guess that's why I like it, though, because mm. I kind of somehow be involved in this industry and, and so to see a small reflection, even if I can't totally relate to it, even though it's horrifying some aspects of myself in what? Even if this reflection is a bit horrifying and pessimistic. Yeah, it still feels like well, ha- well at least there's a place for me. Mm. Might not be the best place, at least I'm not not there. I like these three things because they are about being creative and also being marginalized and also being a very flawed person. And I think that's also what I like about things that are about people in Hollywood is the necessity of admitting that people are deeply, deeply flawed and these flaws are not good. I know Bojack has an entire season about how you're not meant to feel good about this being normalized, yeah. but it's still something I admire about the, that specific genre of things about Hollywood and metafiction about Hollywood is that I feel like it's one of the few genres where people are portrayed so unabashedly flawed. Corrupted even. In a way that they are not moralized. Like with Hollywood, for example, you can watch a character like Dick Samuels, who is at the beginning like very complicit in this system, then slowly becomes someone who's trying to change it. Or even with Evelyn... She even says at the beginning of the book, like, you're going to hate me by the time you finish. And you might think for some of that book, like, that's not possible. But unlike a lot of other genres, it gives itself the room to be nuanced. Like, you keep saying, like, oh, you love how these shows are so nuanced. But I think that's because Hollywood knows itself and knows that people are not simple, even though it's a horrible place and a a very rotten industry. At least in these texts, it's self-aware enough to be like, well, people are not as simple as this person is evil. No, I think another thing that I guess I just like about these three texts is the way that Hollywood is a very specific, very intense setting that acts as a parable for society, I guess, and the way that you can replicate. Oh, yeah. Even in this very specific setting, you can definitely replicate it to other aspects of your life or with other industries that you may be a part of like the writing industry hollywood being a reflection of the world in the way that it kind of is yeah but also it very much isn't like we know it isn't but it is i've been reading a lot as i'm sure everyone else has about the use of celebrity and the use of hollywood as a culture and celebrity as culture and here's the capital t thing about celebrity culture and gossip culture and Hollywood culture is that we have always used Hollywood as a a social arena to hash out our cultural anxieties because it's much easier to project those anxieties onto a single 
personality or maybe a film or a part of an industry than it is to actually deal with it on the ground. And these techs are doing exactly that. This is why like, I don't agree with all the people who claim celebrity culture is useless. It is not. Like The whole reason you're actually talking about a lot of issues is because of celebrity culture, and we've always used celebrity culture as that. And what these texts are just another example of how we're using Hollywood culture and celebrity culture in a narrative format because typically all the studies that have been written about this have focused on um, like gossip magazines. Mm-hmm. These shows are just the equivalent of that, but in a narrative, in a long form narrative format. I think the the paper I read about this focused primarily on um, Jennifer Aniston and how like for the last 20 years, tabloids constantly report on the fact that Jennifer Aniston, like how dare she be a woman and not have a child like the audacity of her to do that and how that projects very much the anxiety that Western society in particular has of single women not having children. Yeah, that's what I think these shows are and these stories are and I think that's why we like them and I just never will agree that celebrity culture is useless. I will never agree that Hollywood culture is useless. I do agree that definitely there are individual celebrities that are useless, but I think as a culture it is very much not useless because sometimes it is the only way that we as a society have been able to talk about issues, particularly social issues that are plaguing our normal society is because it's much easier to talk about it in the parable of Hollywood than it is to talk about it in your everyday life. So that is my final thought nice that's a good final thought to end on i think thank you for listening guys thank you for listening if you like Um, (laughs) it if you have listened this far thank you obviously it's because you like us and if you like us please give us a like do all that stuff leave a review and if you're feeling particularly generous though there are mm. much better causes you could be giving your funds to but you know if you're if you've got some spare funds left over after you've donated to some black lives matter funds and mutual aid funds and all that stuff we have a patreon and mm. a paypal which we will link in the doobly-doo next time we're going to be talking about religious repression or representations of religiously motivated homophobia i know d has a lot to say about that but yeah thank you for listening everyone see you in two weeks have a good pride have a safe pride please please do all you can black lives matter yes black lives matter and please i hope you're doing all you can you know show your support and watch something nice and be safe and uh in case i don't see you sorry i've recently watched the truman show and i'm kind of obsessed (laughs) um anyway uh bye guys thank you